This week, we talk about a new guide that explores every single campground in the National Park Service system, plus your top Googled RV questions. This is RV Miles. This summer, L.L. Bean invites you to simply step outside and enjoy the fresh air and sunshine. We'll be your guide with tips and advice to get more out of every moment outdoors. Here's one. On your next camping trip, turn a headlamp into a lantern in five seconds. Strap the headlamp around an empty clear water bottle or milk jug and turn it on. The soft white light will brighten up a tent. For more fun ideas, easy how-tos, and inspiring stories, visit llbean.com guide. Welcome to episode 244 of RV Miles. I'm Jason. And I'm Abby. And we are two full-time travelers who, along with our three boys, Jack, Ethan, and Henry, have been crisscrossing North America on one epic road trip since 2016. Here at RV Miles, we talk all things RV and outdoors, from travel destinations to industry news, our national parks, and so much more. And we're going to kick off the show this week with some RV questions that people have. These are actually some of the top things that come up when you Google, why do RVs? So you just go to Google and you say, why do RV? And this is what you're going to get. And the first one cracks me up because we all ask it. Why do RV slides have carpet. And there's a really good reason for that, actually. Is there? And it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a problem that's been affecting the industry since they've started to remove carpet from slides. So slides have carpet, and it's annoying because, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want carpet under your kitchen dinette where food gets into it, right? Not so much. But the reason that big slides especially have carpet is so that they can put a carpet layer down on the floor and then a carpet layer on the slide, and those two layers of carpet overlap each other, and nothing gets under there. Mm -hmm. You don't have dirt and Legos and things that get under there that then up scraping up the floor and messing with the mechanics of the slide. Plus, that creates a barrier that keeps bugs and air and water and animals out. (laughs) You know, that's the one big difference between when we had the trailer that had the big kitchen slide with carpet. And now here in the Sabre where we have the big kitchen slide with no carpet is that before every single travel day, I have to make sure that I look underneath our slide here in the kitchen because that gap is just enough between the slide and the floor that things like you mentioned, Legos, pebbles, any, any tiny little piece, even food, hard food, anything that gets under there has the potential to damage the floor as you're bringing that slide in. So I always have to make sure I check underneath there and then run something under there to get all of the gunk out. Yeah. And this, so this is something that people want. They don't want mm-hmm. carpet in their slides. And the RV industry knows this because it's the top Googled thing. Right? Right. So right. they've been pulling them out and they've had to come up with other solutions. So sometimes you'll see um, like vinyl flooring that is just flappy and mm-hmm. overlaps. Sometimes mm-hmm. you'll see a step up into the slide, like is like what we have in order in order to give them room to put a seal under there. So there are different ways that they're dealing with that, but that's the main reason why you may have an RV with no carpet anywhere in it, but just in your big slide. 
So let's pick another one here from the why do RV list. And how about why do RV refrigerators catch fire? People would really like to know why this is happening. And RV fires are often caused by the fridge. And um, in a lot of RVs, it's the propane slash electric fridge where there's actually a burner back there that that lights in. But it's not necessarily that burner that is causing fires. It's often an electrical cause. But the biggest thing is when you have a fridge like that that works off of absorption, which means they've got to heat something in order to cool something, right? That's how the uh, gas electric fridges work. They have to be very well vented. And that vented compartment gets filled with all kinds of gunk and dust and dirt and bugs and nests and stuff. And people aren't very good at cleaning those out. Now, I don't want to put all the blame on the owners, Mm -hmm. but that is such an important thing for you to do on a very regular basis is clean out the back of that fridge compartment, check the roof vent and make sure the roof vent is clear because that heat has got to go somewhere. Compressor fridges like uh, like we have a DC compressor fridge or you might have a 110-volt residential fridge, they don't put as much heat out. So there's less of an issue in fridge fires coming from them. All right. So I have to go to this one because it made me smile when I read it. And that is... Why do RVs cost so much? <laughs> Why do RVs cost so much? I, my answer to that is my answer to everything. Why anybody says why something costs so much, it's because people are willing to pay that much. Well, yes, that I would say yes. I, I also think there's a, a wide range of how much RVs cost, just as there's a wide range of how much a house costs or a car costs, uh, how, how much clothes cost. It's going to depend upon the quality, the material used, the size, the weight, what it can do. Are you hauling toys in it? Do you want, you know, that onboard generator or that extra fuel tank in your, you know, toy hauler and all of these things? And the more you want, the more it's going to cost. They're hand-built small houses. I mean, it just really you know? comes down to that. They're, I, they're, they don't have the ability there's not the scale to do robotic assembly lines Mm -hmm. that save labor costs and that sort of stuff that the automobile industry has and uh you know obviously the price of everything is going up yeah that's not to say that maybe the inflation has risen a little bit in the last two years in the rv industry but you know again it's just uh, like anything you buy, you have to buy within your set budget, within your means, and and then go out and look at what's available out there. I mean, the difference in some respects to buying a $150,000 house in one area versus buying a $150,000 house in another area is huge. The same could be said for an RV. Dealerships, they, you know, we found our trailer for much cheaper than what it was being sold at where we bought it. And we took that to them and said, hey, you know, it's not too far for us to drive to go get it over here. Do you want to honor this? And a lot of it continues to be a scarcity thing. There are certainly a lot more RVs on dealership lots now, but the luxury brands, let's put it that way, uh, still and and motorhomes in particular, still lots of waits for, uh, still Mm -hmm. lots of difficulties getting them. The manufacturers... We're able to replenish the travel trailers pretty quickly, but 
there's still a if you if you want a high-end brand it's a little bit harder to find exactly what you want so scarcity drives up the cost here's another one um i would not have thought that this would be in what is like this looks like the top 10 uh searchable top searches on google and that is why do rvs have small tires yeah yeah that's interesting i've never heard anyone (laughs) i've personally never heard anyone ask us or comment on tire size now certainly we hear a lot of tire quality uh but we don't really hear anything about the size of tires i'm not quite sure what size people want on this are they looking for like big off-road yeah i I can't imagine taking what we have on the tremor and (laughs) putting (laughs) it on the saver oh i know it exists but i can't imagine it being on the saver can you no but you know they they size the tire based on the axle and uh, how much weight it needs to carry and what that tire spe- what that manufacturer specs and you know generally they're putting the the tire that is the lowest common denominator that they need to put on there I um, wonder if that's what this really yeah. means is more about the what the tire can handle as opposed yeah. to the actual like size of the tire yeah yeah I mean and I'll, you'll see lots of people including us if you travel a lot with your RV it's often worth if you have a trailer specifically upgrading to mm-hmm. a, a better load rating tire uh, especially if you're gonna fill it up to the max cargo carrying capacity and travel 10,000 miles or more a year on it it's definitely worth upgrading to a higher cargo a higher load rating tire one more sure okay one more why do rvs have ladders well so you can get to the roof (laughs) (laughs) or so you can put your poop wagon on the back or a bike or yeah, yeah exactly i mean we've talked a little bit about this though that not all RVs with ladders mean that your roof is walkable, though. Yes, and, that's, and vice versa. Yes. Just because you don't have a ladder doesn't mean you can't walk on your roof. Yeah, so the ladder thing, I think, sometimes can be a little deceptive because of that fact right there. You could have a ladder, but you could have a roof that you shouldn't be walking on. So that ladder kind of just becomes an extra place for storage you're usually going to find that in like a small class b camper van that that there's a ladder but you're not supposed to walk on the roof uh but you know the issue really at hand here is that all rv roofs need to be inspected regularly Mm -hmm. the seals uh need to be inspected and uh and fixed you know it's you should be doing it i i suggest quarterly i suggest every three months you're getting up there doing that and your your warranty from your manufacturer is going to say it's something like six months or quarterly that you need to be getting up there and inspecting those and replacing any sealant that's gone bad because it's not the roof material that's going to cause leaks it's the penetrations in the roof it's the fans the air conditioners the vents all that sort of stuff and you gotta check those seals yeah and if you're kind of wondering what jason means there we have a really short reel on this subject and i will link to it in the show notes as well as in the description for this episode's video okay uh i think it is time to move on we're going to take a break and when we come back i did an interview a few days ago with kurt repencheck of National Parks Traveler, which is such a great publication online that uh, is a nonprofit. And they've uh, gone through and made a PDF digital book that covers every national park 
service campground in a very, very, very convenient way. And Kurt and I talked for a very long time, not just about their book, but about the state of national park campgrounds and campgrounds in and around national parks across the country, because there are some challenges, as we all know, uh, going on with that. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have my interview with Kurt Repinchuk. Be right back. Chances are you've seen them on the road. That's because Blue Ox has been designing and manufacturing some of the best towing products in the industry. Blue Ox is everywhere. Highways, campgrounds, anywhere you find people traveling in the great outdoors. Blue Ox produces award-winning tow bars and base plates, plus a full line of weight-distributing hitches and a new lineup of adjustable ball mounts. With Blue Ox, towing doesn't have to be a drag. To learn more about how Blue Ox can make your travel adventures even more stress-free, visit BlueOx.com. My guest today is Kurt Repinchak, veteran journalist and the founder and editor-in-chief of the nonprofit National Parks Traveler, as well as the host of the wonderful National Parks Traveler podcast. Kurt has spearheaded the creation of a new guide for RVers visiting national parks entitled The Essential RVing Guide to the National Parks. Kurt, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Great to join you today. So uh, let's let's begin in the world of of traveling national parks. The National Park Service is one of the biggest operator of campgrounds, right? They're up there, yeah, for sure. We certainly like to spend lots of time on on federal land, not just national parks. Um, but we talked extensively on the show about how the National Park Service isn't just the the sixty three national parks, but it's also the national monuments and and all that. And um, the system of national park campgrounds is challenging to RVers in a way that is maybe a little bit different from private campgrounds and that, and that there are all sorts of different size and height and weight limitations, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the bulk of the national park campgrounds, I mean, uh, probably date back to the 1950s. I can't think of uh, when a new campground was added to the park system. I mean, from time to time, they might reconfigure them a little bit. I know over at Great Basin National Park in Nevada, they're, they're working on, um, I think, adding a few more RV spaces. But, but overall, um, the footprints haven't really radically changed in, in probably half a century. And that's, that's really incredible right now as RVing is going through this big boom phase and really has been for some time now, at least, at least five, six years, not just COVID related, but it's really increased a lot recently. And we've seen lots of investment going into private campgrounds or new campgrounds being built uh, across the country in the private sector. But things happen a little bit slower on public lands. And the, the purpose isn't to sort of bring in dollars and, and, and get people into campgrounds, right? Not at all. Not at all. And I think that's where the the difference is, I mean, obviously, the, the private campgrounds outside the national parks, I mean, they're they're out there to, to monetize their investment, which is perfectly fine. Um, and so they can be a little bit more responsive. They want to be a little bit more responsive to the changes in the RV world. I mean, you, you think about the, the size of the RVs 50 years ago, and you think of the ones that are rolling off the lots today. I mean, there's a huge difference. And of course, you know, the technology that we have today, you know, everybody wants to you know, look at their phone or, or stream in Apple Music or, you know, whatever, wherever they are. And um, the national parks weren't designed for that. And I guess, you know, the, the discussion that needs to be have is a, is a philosophical one. I mean, where do you want the national parks to go? Do you want the national parks to, 
to match the private industry step for step? Um, I don't think so. And maybe I'm just getting long in tooth, but, um, you know, I, I think uh, still the bulk of America hopefully wants to go to the national parks to enjoy nature foremost. And, um, you know, they can do without their uh, technological amenities and their, their extra um, long RVs for a, a few days. I, in fact, I think a lot of times when the discussion comes up in, in a local region, whether it be a national park, a state park, or, or what have you, uh, when the conversation about a new campground comes up, there's often uh, a lot of pushback because it might compete with private campgrounds and it might sort of uh, bring down the rates at private campgrounds and hurt those those businesses who are trying to make money. So I think there's sort of some there's a there's a, a balance that is often trying to be struck by our politicians <laughs> that doesn't really happen in a uh, in a convenient way as as most politics don't. Um, but what is your sense of the uh, the current situation at at national park campgrounds in in this time of uh, of really busy focus on camping and outdoor recreation and RVing? Well, things things are, are really crowded, as you well know, Jason. Um, there's obviously more demand than there's availability, and um, the federal government um, has struggled to to figure out. How to deal with that availability? I mean, they've they've come out with Recreation.gov as the, the be all and end all solution to reserving your your national park or your national forest or your BLM campground spot, and it's a good idea. But in today's world, I don't think it works because unless you have a fiber optic cable connected to your computer, you're always going to be lagging behind when it comes time to click that button to reserve. I mean. We've got dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of comments on the traveler over the years of people complaining that uh, recreation.gov must be rigged. There must be um, bots out there that are snagging the campgrounds because I clicked at eight o'clock in one second or eight o'clock in two seconds and campgrounds full. How can that be? You know, week after week, month after month, year after year. So um, it's, a, it's a good idea, but I just don't think it's equitable across the board. I think one of the challenges too is that uh, the campgrounds in different places that are listed on recreation.gov might release their site availability at different times. There's no sort of one way that the National Park Service does it. You might have one campground that releases everything uh, on January 1, one that does rolling six weeks. Yeah, yeah. And one, one of the things they're trying to do is um, um, placate the locals, so to speak. Because, you know, people who live in a gateway towns or gateway communities or, or a county away, a half hour away, you know, they might not decide until um, Wednesday that they want to go camping in a national park on Friday or Saturday. And so um, the folks at recreation.gov took that into consideration and have given some of the national parks or all of the national parks the, the freedom to, to hold back sites for the, the first come, first serve. But, you know, it, it's interesting because um, I was down in uh, Colorado last weekend, uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, and um, we actually stayed in a Forest Service campground right adjacent to Rocky Mountain because all the national park sites were full. And um, I was talking to the campground host, and I said, you know, one of the problems I keep hearing about is that people will reserve a site via recreation.gov and it will show that all the sites are, are full and, you know, people will show up and drive through and, and see a bunch of vacant sites. What's the deal with that? 
And she told me that they have to hold a site for 24 hours um, before they can, you know, release it to whoever walks up and says, hey, do you have any open sites? Which that kind of surprised me. I didn't think it was a 24-hour window that you have to show up past the day that you um, reserved it for, you know, if you reserved it for three days. She actually was able to to get in contact with the, the individual that had reserved it and there was a family issue where uh, I think one of the children was sick, and so that put them behind. But um, it, it just seems kind of kind of uh, interesting, to, to put it mildly, that they would you know hold a, a site vacant for 24 hours to see if the party was going to show up. Yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of RVers. So on the flip side of this, I've talked to a lot of RVers who have who have said, and I'm not a fan of this practice by any means, that they will. Um, They'll book a couple days before and a couple days after they plan on being at a certain location in order to have some flexibility in case something happens on their journey and uh, takes them longer to get there or less time to get there or what have you. Or, or perhaps they might book an extra day at the end because they want, they don't want to leave until five o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. And they might leave early in the evening. I think there, um, there's sort of a lot of that going on. And then there's the affordability of, of some sites, especially if you have sort of the half off rate that you get as a, as a senior or person with a disability. And, you know, you might be paying $12 a night for a campground. And I think a lot of people that have the wherewithal to do so might uh, go in and book a lot of weekends or weeks uh, that they haven't asked off for work yet, or they have no idea whether they're going to be available, but they just know all of these sites are going to go away. So I need to book them right now. And they, they might forget to release them. They might not do it until last minute. Yeah. I've heard about that. I've heard about that. And uh, <clears throat> speaking as a senior, I think I deserve that half off rate. I, I think you do too. Seriously though. I mean, a lot, a lot of the rates are incredibly affordable. I mean, when you see somebody pull into a campground, whether it's a national park campground or a private campground or a forest service or BLM campground, driving a, a three hundred or $400,000 RV and they're paying $12 a night, there's something wrong with that. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I know they've paid their dues like you know the rest of taxpayers out there, but and I don't know how to make it equitable. I don't know what the solution is. I mean, do you, do you charge 1% of the, the vehicle's worth? I don't know. What would you suggest? It, it, it's it's very tough because that that's uh... – that three hundred thousand dollar class A is is that to to one person, and then eight years later, it's a twenty thousand dollar home to somebody with limited income. And so you, you have no idea, and and there's just no way to to make that that I can think of uh, equitable. And unfortunately, the the affordable prices make it uh, easier for people to just um, be a little bit looser with how they book these sites. And I think, you know, a big part of it is just really encouraging people to only book what they need to, to cancel well in, in, in advance of not showing up. I I'm guessing I I would be curious what your sense of this is, but I, I think as, as you all were researching the book, I would imagine that you've found that there are fewer and fewer campgrounds in the system that are first come first serve. And it seems like most of them are going to looking online uh, through recreation.gov. 
Yeah, they are. They are. And, and it's kind of disconcerting in some aspects. And I say that because um, <clears throat> Rocky Mountain National Park used to have a wonderful um, system for reserving backcountry sites. If, you know, if you're backpacking in and you want to spend a couple nights in the backcountry, they had a great system where you could see online, real-time, um, what sites were available, which sites weren't available, and you could go from there. And then they were forced to go to recreation.gov, and Yellowstone was forced to go to recreation.gov. And it's just, you know, it, it's not a level playing field, and it's it's very unfortunate. More and more sites are are going into the rental pool, so to speak, and, and fewer are in the first come, first serve. And I don't know what I, I really don't know what the answer is. I mean, I'm glad I'm not a park service manager, but um, there are some problems with recreation.gov. But but here's another issue, Jason, that that I see, and and I'd be curious on your thoughts. You know, the Park Service um, recently came out with what they call their 21st century um, vision for camp campgrounds in the national park system. And one thing it didn't seem to address too well, and I'm not sure how you could go backwards with that in terms of, you know, applying that document to a campground that's been around for 50 years. It seems that um, the campgrounds shoehorn people in for the most part. I mean, the Madison campground up in Yellowstone, you're, you're shoulder to shoulder, site to site. Um, I was in Iowa during my recent road odyssey and I went to a state park there. And, you know, it's like you could reach out your window and touch the RV next to you. And I really question, um, and even the Forest Service site I saw in um, Colorado last weekend, is that the way we want to camp? I mean, I understand we're trying to make as many sites available because there's a lot of people that want to enjoy camping in the outdoors. But is that is that really enjoyment when you're so close to each other? And in the case of the um, the Madison campground, I mean, everybody seemed to want to have their own little campfire. And I ran into the same thing in Capitol Reef National Park. And so you get this this haze of smoke just wafting through the campground, which isn't healthy and a lot of people don't like it. But I just wonder if if the 21st century vision for campgrounds in the national park system should have been a little more grand in terms of, you know, we need to have a minimum of X amount of space between the um, the campsites. And we have to appreciate that wood smoke is not the healthiest um, for human consumption and can lead to forest fires. And, and maybe we got to come up with maybe a, a propane fire ring at, at campgrounds. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I guess two things in, in terms of, in terms of the fires, I love a good campfire, I, but I'm I I have no issue with when the campgrounds don't allow fires. I, I I mean I get that a lot of people want to cook that way, and it's a it's a nice thing to be able to do in the evening and sit around. But but this day and age with the with the forest fire problem that we have right now, eighty five percent of fires of uh, forest fires being human caused and a lot of them from campers i have no issue with not having a campfire um but in terms of being and being close i don't i i don't mind i think there are ways to do it and i i get that some of the busiest parks they they need spaces for people um but there are ways to do it that allow for um, you to sort of feel like you have separation from your neighbor. That's a challenge for the National Park Service because they're trying to keep the campground as natural as possible. And 
a lot of that is usually done with landscaping. And I, that's that's something that they probably, you know, would would frown upon doing a bunch of landscaping in a campground. But I feel like you're already turning this space into a campground. You're already putting pavement down and dropping in electrical boxes and stuff like that. Why not do some landscaping with plants that are in, indigenous to the area and all that sort of stuff and trees? I, I think I think there are there are ways to sort of think about that, and I think that was missing from that plan—a way to sort of create separation um, for people. And then I, I think you know, looking at the uh, looking at the visitation of certain uh, places, and and if if there's not a need to sort of pack people in, well, then let's not. Um, but part of it is finding spaces to create new campgrounds, uh, and and. That's hard for for the National Park Service to do, again, because they're trying to protect the land. But uh, I I think there are a lot of the very big national parks still have lots of spaces that aren't really natural wonders to be protected. They're they're utilitarian uh, pieces of land that are still available to them that I think it would be good for the Park Service to build some some new more modern campgrounds on i what i loved about that plan actually um when i read through it i was sort of surprised at how a a lot of it was was talking about keeping the campgrounds natural and sort of uh really focusing on different abilities and the different ways that people uh like to camp so you know they're talking about hammock camping and bicycle camping and and all that sort of stuff, and I I think that kind of thinking was was great, um, but there just needed to be more of it, and and something yeah that bigger bigger ways of thinking about how we can do this, how how can we put in campgrounds into sites that aren't big natural places? I mean, I, wouldn't it be great if there was a a couple campsites at at uh, at the Gateway Arch, three or four or five campsites that that you could camp right down town in Missouri on, you know, I, there, I think there are different ways to think about approaching campgrounds that, that don't have to be sort of the typical, what I'm sitting in right now, um, the 10 feet away from me, I mean, it's a great little County park, but, um, 10 feet away from me, the next RV year. Yeah. I was at Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, um, on my road trip and it's, uh, roughly 11,000 acres and there's not a campground there. And, um, Part of that reason is is the bulk of the acreage is is owned by the Nature Conservancy, and you know they want to manage it for nature, which is understandable. Um, it, it's kind of a shame. I don't know where the nearest campground is. Um, I stayed in um, Emporia, Kansas, and it was about a, a twenty mile drive from there to um, Tallgrass Prairie, which is a beautiful, beautiful unit of the park system. You know, one thing that we're we're concentrating on this year, the National Parks Traveler, is looking at the overlooked gems of the park system and um, Tallgrass Prairie is, is really one of them for a variety of reasons, whether you want to go look at the beautiful wildflowers in the Tallgrass Prairie that can grow to six foot tall by the end of the summer, or you want to look at the bison herd that they have there, or you want to learn about um, 19th century ranching history in uh, the, the place that uh, Stephen Jones and his wife built there in the, the cattle empire they, they started. But anyway, um, there probably are some places in the national park system where you could expand camping. It'd be great to have a place for, for bicycle campers. 
you know, just bicycle campers. But if you're going to do that in, in places like Yellowstone, you got to widen those roads. Um, you take your life in your hands, I think, when you're riding a bicycle on the Grand Loop Road. I don't know that I could do that. What, the, cars, the cars being one thing, the bison being the other. <laughs> I don't know that I could even be on a motorcycle out there. That way you, get, you get stuck at a bison jam and you stop and you're on a, you're on a bike. I, I'll, that would, that would frighten me a little bit. I, <laughs> I, yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a challenge all around. And I, I think, um, I think part of it too is, is not just the National Park Service. It's, um, working within the national forests where there's a little bit more flexibility, where a lot of them are butted up right against national parks and, uh, and, and building more convenient access. I like a lot of what the national, uh, forests are doing in some situation where they have problems uh, with the overabundance of people trying to do some wild camping, boondocking right now, where they're starting to do sort of reservable boondocking sites. And that sounds terrible to a lot of people, but I, there is an element of that I like where it's like, you want to, you want to overnight at this roadside pull off. Here's a little document that says what you can and what you can't do. And you're going to reserve it and you can only reserve it for a night or two. Maybe there's a level of that to, to happen in, in some national parks where they have the ability to let somebody, you know, overnight in their parking lot where there's not a campground or something like that. I think maybe there's possibilities uh, of that at places like uh, uh, Petrified Forest, you know, where there there's a there's a decent parking lot. Maybe they could uh, give people an overnight permit to stay in the parking lot. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever been to the, uh, the campground at Guadalupe mountains national park. They've their campground, their RV campground is, it is literally a big pavement parking lot, right? Um, where you, you pay to, you, they do have, uh, they do have like a bath, a bathhouse that you can use, but, and there are challenges that come with that then too. Then people don't use it properly. They might dump their black water on the ground and stuff like that. So I don't envy the national park service and, 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 and sort of thinking these problems through. No, not at all. Because, you know, pick a problem. Um, camping's a problem. What about um, overcrowding in the parks in general? I mean, if you're going to let people camp overnight in the um, old faithful Inn parking lot, how many more people is that going to bring into the park? Um, and there's already a problem with too many people, not just in Yellowstone, but you could argue there's too many in, in Arches and in, in Zion and Acadia, um, Great Smoky Mountains and on and on and on. I hate to say it, but I, I think it, it, they might have to move to a reservation system during the, the height of the, the park or the summer season. And the problem with that, of course, goes back to the problem with recreation.gov. I mean, how do you how do you come up with an equitable reservation system? And, well, you know, some people might say, well, get a, get a room in the lodge. And with the, the Park Service philosophy that we can't undercut the gateway towns, a motel room basically in, in Yellowstone is $300 a night. And, and sure, you're in the world's first national park, but how equitable is that when you're looking across all segments of the economy? Well, we do have within the national park system, uh, all of these campgrounds that are ran by concessionaires, some of the very most popular campgrounds out there that are ran by concessionaires that are not available on recreation.gov. And I think this is a good point to a uh, good place to transition talking about the book because you can't go on recreation.gov and get information about all of the campgrounds in the national park system. 
you need to know about the ones that are run by concessionaires too, which are not available on that site. So you've created a book that is a, a great resource, a very simple, intuitive resource for going through all of the campgrounds in the National Park Service system with a sort of list of the things they have and the things they don't, how to book, all that sort of stuff. So what what were you sort of setting out to solve when you guys put together uh, the Essential RVing Guide to the National Parks? You know, basically, the, the, the solution that we went in search of was one resource that you could look at all the campgrounds in the National Park System that can accommodate RVs of various sizes. And otherwise, you know, you're stuck with going through 400, I mean, theoretically, 423 units of the park system, or if you just want to focus on quote unquote national parks, 63 units, but that still requires going to 63 different websites and then drilling down to the camping page and then searching here and searching there. And so we figured that, you know, there's a real opportunity here to solve that problem by creating one document. In, in this case, it's a 280, 282 page ebook or, or PDF, if you want to get that version that provides all that information on, <clears throat> I believe, um, over 270 campgrounds in the, the 70 plus units of the park system that provide camping um, for RVs that, that, that have campgrounds that will accommodate RVs. And it just seemed like a, a no-brainer and um, to be able to create a document. And this is where technology really comes in great. You can go to the, the table of contents and, and see the park that you want and click on that park name. And it'll take you right to that chapter in the book. You won't have to flip through pages or whatnot. But, um, and really provide that information that um, we think that uh, RVers need. I mean, is there Wi-Fi there? Are there dump stations there? Are there full hookups there? Is there a camp store nearby? You know, if you live at sea level, what's the elevation of the campground I'm going to? <laughs> Am I going to have trouble breathing or acclimating? Um, how big is my RV? Is there is there a site in that campground that will accommodate my RV? Um, what about ADA accessibility? And so we, we try to, to provide all that information in one one easy to use document. And, and that's the, the short and the long of it. So I'm I'm looking at. Um... Uh, I'm looking at the at Acadia since it's first, uh, and you've got uh, some of the things that I wouldn't have thought about putting together something something like this. Where what are the generator hours? Do they allow generators at all? What are the generator hours? What are the quiet hours? You know, some people might not want to arrive during quiet hours. Uh, do they have toilets? Do they have flush toilets? Are they pit toilets? Are they open seasonally? Or are they open all year? Showers. What's the cell reception like? And then, then you've got sort of like a great important notes section where here at the Blackwoods Campground at, at Acadia, RVs not to exceed 11 foot high. There's thick, low tree canopy. That's something that you can find when you've dug and dug through the website, but that's really important information to know. That's virtually every fifth wheel in most class A motorhomes are not going to want to, to use those campgrounds. So I, I think it's really smart how you've, how you've laid this out in a, in a really easy to digest way. Well, thanks. And, and really, I've got to um, give a big hand to my, my co-author on this, Renee Agredano, who, along with her husband, Jim, you know, they've been full-time RVers like you for, for seven or eight years now. And they were actually up in Acadia once when they saw an RVer in front of her. The guy actually got on top of the roof of his fifth wheel with a, a bow saw. 
to cut down the, the limbs that were they're hanging up on his rig. You know, one other thing that, that I enjoyed, for each park, we provide an introduction that kind of gives you an overview of, of the, the park itself and, and what people can expect there. And then um, we toss in, you know, Traveler's Choice 4. And, you know, you mentioned the Acadia chapter and, you know, hiking, obviously, tide pooling, you know, if it's your first time in uh, the coastal areas of the national park system, you know, what's tide pooling, um, you know, going down along the shoreline at low tide and seeing what animals have been left behind, um, biking, you know, the, the carriage roads in Acadia, just wonderful paddling, of course, and birding. So we try and do that for, for every unit or every chapter to, to give people an expectation of, of what they might uh, expect when they get to that park or, or whether they want to go to that park at all. So it is, it is an ebook only. Do you have any plans for it to be published uh, in print at all? No, <laughs> in short, no. Um, I, I, I struggle to get my head around the, the financial logistics of that. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes and, you know, maybe a publisher will approach us and say, Hey, this would be a great project to, to collaborate on. Um, <clears throat> one thing we are going to do is, um, create an app for the second edition. And, and that's another thing, you know, we plan to do a, an annual update because obviously, um, park fees might change. There might be, who knows, there might be new campgrounds to add to the, the book. But also, um, we, we view it as a living document in that, you know, National Parks Traveler, we're a, a daily web magazine that provides a, a cross-hybrid hybridization of, of daily news as well as uh, feature stories. And um, we've got RV content on there, you know, and we weave that RV content into this into this ebook. So, you know, along with getting the, the nuts and bolts of, of the campgrounds in the National Park, you know, there'll be some additional um, material that hopefully is, is helpful to, to RVers. For instance, you know, I've written a piece on RVing arches in Canyonlands National Park and, and, you know, here's where you can go and this is what you should know. And these are some of the great places you should see in the parks. I mean, obviously, I think somebody who's <clears throat> got their heart set on visiting uh, Sequoia National Park needs to know that the General's Highway is not the best place to pull an RV, pull a fifth wheel. Um, so we, we hope by doing annual updates, you know, there'll be not only up-to-date financial information and any logistical information that changes, but a whole new um, section of content, um, park-specific content that, that will benefit the RVer out there. Well, I, I do love, too, that the book begins with a, a whole lot of sort of general overall uh, tips and thoughts and ideas about RVing in national parks because it, I think there is a there is a barrier there for a lot of people where they don't know what they're they're getting into if they've they've never done it before they're you know you're not uh, working with a, a corporate business that is out to do um, hospitality <laughs> you know you're 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 pulling into often a more rugged area there you're there are rangers and uh, camp hosts and people don't know what all that sort of stuff means when they first get into this. And I think it's, it's really helpful, conveniently, um, easily laid out. And when you buy, uh, buy the book, you're supporting national parks traveler. You, uh, you guys are a great resource. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the creation and the operations of, of national parks traveler, which is a, a wonderful nonprofit bringing all this information about national parks uh, to to Americans. You know, the, the 
the establishment date, um, to use Park Service vernacular, goes back to August of 2005. And uh, I was a freelance writer. I had um, recently um, written America's National Parks for Dummies, um, truth be told. Fabulous book, fabulous. Um, but I was constantly searching for, for topics I could pitch to magazines, not just in the, the realm of national parks, but in environmental issues, wildlife issues, public lands issues. And so I figured, you know, this was the, the advent of the blogging world out there. And by creating a blog, it would search me, it would force me to search for topics to put on that blog. And at the same time, I could use those ideas to pitch to magazines. And um, uh, not too long after I started that, um, <clears throat> the magazine world kind of cratered a little bit. Um, the the dot-com boom was underway. Magazines were either scaling back their, their staffing and the, the pages or going going out of business completely. At the same time, the, the readership of The Traveler was, was increasing. I remember the, the first week that I had launched it. I had like 400 readers, which I thought was phenomenal because I didn't advertise it. There was no marketing at all. It was just word of mouth and, and luck of the draw. And today, you know, 400 might be a good hour um, readership. Um, we, we reach roughly 3 million readers and listeners a year. Um, I transitioned the, the for-profit National Parks Traveler into a nonprofit in, in 2016, um, largely because, as I alluded to earlier, I'm not getting any younger um, eventually I do expect I will retire if I don't die at my keyboard. And I believe enough in the mission about writing about national parks and protected areas, not just here in the United States, but globally, because there are issues with national parks globally, um, that there's plenty of content to focus on in that realm. I mean, I had been approached by, by businesses that, hey, let's merge and, you know, we can add national forests and BLM lands and state forests and city parks. And I just thought that that would dilute the content that, that I thought was so valuable out there. And as you well know, Jason, there are plenty of stories to tell from the national parks and not just stories of uh, rainstorms or flooding that um, really wrecked havoc with the northern half of Yellowstone National Park, but, but stories of wonderment and um, great history and, and great, great recreational adventures to be had out there. And so we transitioned to a, a nonprofit in um, 2016, 501c3, and that's what we do, um, a nonprofit news organization, and um, we do weekly podcasts, and um, we've done um, over 180 shows since February of 2019, and we've seen almost 450,000 downloads. So there's an appetite for um, content on national parks, and we try and Realizing that different generations consume news in, in different fashions. I mean, I'd like a good magazine or a book to you know flip through the pages or dog ear the pages or underline things. Other people like to read online. Um, lots of people like to consume their co their content via podcast. And so the the one realm we really haven't gotten into is is the printed, the printed version of National Parks Traveler and. Just trying to think of the, the logistics there, Jason. I mean, there was 300 million visitors to the national park system last year. There's 423 units. How many copies do you print? How do you how do you deliver them? How do you convince um, the gift shops to carry those magazines? It's just daunting. <laughs> it is, and the world is certainly moving away 
from from that as well. So uh, tell us uh, tell us about where people can uh, can get the book. Well, um, nationalparkstraveler.org. If you um, go to the homepage and um, at, on the menu bar, you'll see a, 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 a button for your national parks. And if you click on that, the, the very top um, drop down menu is the Traveler Collection Apparel and Gear. And um, yeah, to try and um, raise revenues for um, the part for National Parks Traveler, we, we do sell National Parks Traveler branded um, merchandise, um, sleeve t shirts and sweatshirts and whatnot. Um, and we encourage people to take a look at that because all the all the proceeds do go to go to um, National Parks Traveler. But if you go there, you'll, you'll find the um, the essential RVing guide, and you can either um, purchase a, an EPUB version to um, download to your Kindle. Or other tablet. Um, we also have um, a PDF version if, if you like that instead. And uh, as I mentioned, um, we hope to transition to a, um, an app um, for the next edition coming out early next year, just because lots of people are familiar with apps and know how to find an app on their, their cell phone as opposed to where did I put that PDF? Well, uh, we'll also link to, uh, we'll link directly to the website and to the, the book as well in the description for this episode kurt it's always uh it was always a joy to talk to you about national parks thanks so much for for coming on rv miles jason it's lots of fun talking and i look forward to hooking up with you down the road looking for a one-stop shop for a variety of rv products and replacement parts eTrailer.com has you covered with a variety of RV items, including towing options, interior accessories, replacement parts, storage, and more. But it doesn't stop with RVs. eTrailer.com even offers automobile accessories, sports activities, recreation, and more. If you need it, they've got it. Shop online from the comfort of your home and receive free shipping in the lower 48 for purchases over $99. Head over to eTrailer.com slash RV miles to start shopping today. That's eTrailer.com slash RV miles. We are back and our thanks to Kurt for joining us for that really insightful conversation between the two of you. I'm glad you guys had a chance to talk. And then also I'm thrilled by that PDF that they put out because I know just for us as travelers, that's it's already saved. It's yeah. an incredible resource for our viewers. Yeah. So we really appreciate him taking the time to come on the show and share all of his knowledge. Um, all right. It's time to check the level of our tanks. Mr. Jason, what is in your black tank this week? Oh, all the terrible flooding that's been happening oh, in my goodness. Kentucky and St. Yeah. Louis. Uh, <laughs> natural disasters seem to be so common right now. People are dealing with lots and lots of smoke and fire in the West right now. Uh, but these floods have been pretty awful. I read something the other day that uh, in Kentucky there was a, a museum that was just full of records of Appalachian oh, no. history. And uh, their records room was like, they're scraping mud off the walls six oh, feet high. No. Everything was totally buried. And I'm sure most of it is, is ruined. And uh, it's, it's, of course, you know, that is nothing compared to the people that have lost their lives. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's rough. So there, there's that uh, in, in Kentucky and then in the sort of St. Louis area of Missouri, there's been a lot of flooding as well. Yeah, we had some friends who are there working on a show and everything got a little got a little crazy yeah. for them I, for I, a while. I think it's important to remember too that campgrounds are often in areas that get flooded quickly. Mm -hmm. um, the Greenbrier Campground in uh, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which we've stayed at, uh, dealt with some flooding 
recently and had cars that were like uh, up in trees after the flooding went down. You you really need to kind of know what's going on with the weather. There's flash yes. flood one warnings if you're near water. Be really careful about that stuff. Yeah, please just stay vigilant, everyone. Stay aware. Use There's several weather resource apps. We will link to the show notes in the description, maybe a few that we recommend and use. But whether you're in an RV or you're in your home, just please be aware. Weather and you know natural disasters, they're here to stay. And so we need to, and I mean here to stay as an elevated here to stay. And it's really important that we stay really mindful and vigilant. Yeah. All right, Jason, what is in your fresh tank this week? Well, thankfully, fuel prices continue to drop. Ooh, we're going um, here. All right. We, you know, <laughs> gas prices are down almost 80 cents now from mm-hmm. the high of like a month and a half ago. And uh, <laughs> yeah, they're still high. Uh, don't get me wrong, but it is nice to not be paying as much as we're, we were before. Yeah. And here we're where we are right now. We're on the <laughs> Iowa-Illinois border, and the it's like we another, go to Iowa. <laughs> it's like another sixty cents savings to cross well, over into not only, Iowa. <laughs> not only do we go to Iowa, but we go to Iowa Costco. And the one of the attendants at Costco yesterday when I was filling up was like that's a gas truck? <laughs> I said, it sure is. And he goes, do you have to put like super unleaded in it? I go, nope. I just put the regular old unleaded. And he was like, wow, wow, that's so affordable. And I said, yeah, we're really thankful right now to have a gas truck. <laughs> Diesel Diesel's coming down too, but nowhere near as as much as gasoline. Well, but but uh, it 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 is it is nice to be paying like three sixty five over at that Costco. Excuse me, three forty four. Three forty four. Three forty four. I was doing a happy dance because that got us on the yeah. uh, lower end of one hundred dollars. I, I know a couple of years ago that was that was expensive. <laughs> it is really nice on the pocketbooks to be hey, reduced a bit. Looking forward to those Missouri prices when we get into town <laughs> next week. That'll be nice, too. All right, Abby, what is in your black tank this week? So my black tank is me, this weird thing I've had going on with my finger. A few nights ago, I was out playing football with Ethan, just tossing the ball around. And I guess somehow I injured it. I don't know if he threw it and I went to go grab it. And maybe it hit my middle finger too hard or something. I don't know. But I get done. I look at it. It's swollen. It's like two times the size doesn't hurt. It's just swollen. And I look at Jason and I'm like, oh, my finger is swollen. That's weird. We go about our evening. We go to the baseball game. I don't think anything of it. Go about my day the next day. I'm out at lunch that afternoon with Ethan. And I look down at my finger and it is completely black, black and blue, almost like it has frostbite. And I'm like, whoa, what in the world? And then the next thing I know, the whole finger starts tingling. Like there's no, like no blood is getting to the fingertip at all. I can't I start to not be able to feel it. And I'm like, this is weird. I call Jason, I, like I FaceTime him and I'm like, does this look strange to you? And he's like, whoa, you need to go to the ER. What is that? And I'm like, really? You think so? Yeah. I thought you had like some sort of disease I, and it was going to fall off. It, I like, I could pound it. I could pound on it. And like, I, there's no pain. The finger didn't hurt. There's no, it looked, it, if you, if I had bruised it, sprained it, broken it, or anything, you would think that it would have hurt. I was squeezing it, pulling on it, no pain. Well, it's clearly not a bruise because it's no, better, it's weird. But it's still, it's still yeah, but. it's weird. So I go to the ER. I wait for when it's all said and done. I was there for six hours. 
nobody knows. Like, they were so baffled by me. Um, they're like, it really doesn't hurt. I'm like, no, they're squeezing it. They're pulling on it. They're like, you don't, it doesn't hurt you. I'm like, no, this doesn't hurt. And yet it looks like it's about to fall off and it's tingling. Like there's no circulation. So they, you know, they're like, we don't know. We don't know. We're going to put a compression wrap on it. And if it doesn't get better, you should come back maybe follow up with your doctor, maybe, you know, maybe you caught the ball and you busted some blood vessels and there, you know, all these things. Three or four different doctors like came in to look at me and they were all baffled. Nobody could figure it out. So I just left. I came home and it continues to tingle. It continues to be weird. It's getting better, but it doesn't hurt. I mean, I'm sitting here squeezing it and pulling on it and like there's no pain, but it's a weird, funky color. And I'm telling you, I don't know what it is with us and like odd medical <laughs> things. <laughs> you get them whenever we're here. I thought everyone was like, you're going to lose that finger. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? It doesn't even hurt. So that yeah, was, I thought it was like dying on you or it's, something. <laughs> it's very strange. I, I don't know. I should probably follow up with my provider. I, who knows? I could have something weird going on. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's some flesh eating parasite in there that I don't know. I, no, whatever. I think, I think it was, you're not getting the, you're not getting oxygenated blood probably. to your finger for whatever reason. That's weird, but it'll get better. Yeah. I'm not worried about it, but you know, again, it's just six hours of my day. A whole day's worth of work lost so that I could baffle the ER doctors <laughs> with a weird-looking finger. All right, what's in your fresh tank this week? So my fresh tank also goes to the finger situation, <laughs> if that's what we want to call it, <laughs> to the ER visit. Let's call it the ER visit. I um, mean, how perfect is that? Like, if it was black, like, you can, like, I, give, give people the middle finger I and it's know. black and they'd I'd be like, be like look at, I won't do it here, but oh, look at my finger. Isn't that weird? Um, so they're, they were very, very busy there. And it was because I was sitting for so long, I was kind of privy to watching not only the, uh, front desk who checks you in, but then the triage nurse and how everyone was coming in and they were dealing with, you know, people are, are sick, they're hurting. Um, everyone's need is greater than the person in front of them. In some respects, they feel that it is. And, they field an incredible amount of not only repetitive and redundant, how much longer is it going to be? I'm very, you know, sort of angry individuals, but they also do it and they did it the whole time with compassion. They did it with, we're so sorry that you're having to wait. We understand, you know, uh, people kept leaving and being really angry at them because they were like leaving and they were tired of waiting. And, I just remember I, I walked in and um, I knew it was going to be a wait like the minute I walked in. And there's this thing I've been trying to do lately that I actually learned from my sister-in-law, Mai. And I, we, her and I were talking and, and I, I see her do this all the time. And I just think it's such a wonderful thing. It's when she's talking to someone or when she's leaving a situation and she'll say, thank you. But instead of saying, thank you, I appreciate it, like the word it, she says, thank you, I appreciate you. And the flip from the word it to you is incredibly powerful because it, it puts it back on the person that is helping you, that is taking the time to give service and in whatever capacity. And I thought that that was really beautiful that she does that. And I saw how people reacted to it. So I've been trying to 
be more mindful of that when I talk to someone. So this woman's checking me in and it's becoming second nature now. And I, I get done and, you know, I get my paperwork and she puts my bracelet on and I said, thank you. I, I said, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I just stood up and walked away and she went, thank you. And then she went, thank you. Because she registered that I said you. And I just, I remembered hearing that and I thought, oh, this woman has gone all day long with dealing, you know, doing her best to be uh, sympathetic and empathetic to people. And she probably hasn't had that sort of like reciprocation. So I'm standing over with, because Ethan is still with me before my mother-in-law came to get him. And he's standing there with me. He's sitting down at the windowsill and I'm standing next to him and I'm just on my phone and doing nothing. And the next thing I know, the woman comes over and she has a chair for me and she says, here, you should have, here, take this chair so you can sit down. And I thought, this is, this is how it works. This is the domino effect. Like my kindness to her resulted in another kindness, which will result in another kindness. And we pay it forward. And I just, I thought, you know, that was the, the kind of my beginning of my experience at the ER. And so it made sitting there for the next five hours for me, like I, I never was grumpy yeah. because I saw these people and I saw just how hard they were working. So, you know, my fresh tank is for all the healthcare providers, especially those in the ER um, who are on the front line of people who want that care and they want it right now. Um, they're, they're doing really hard work and they're understaffed. And, you know, the next time you find yourself there, just, just you know, try to, to lift them up because they might have to save your life later <laughs> thankfully right. thankfully they let me keep my finger so <laughs> you know, that was also a positive of the evening uh, all right well that's it for this week's episode that's it thank you so much for joining us this week as always if you're finding value in the content that rv miles provides would you please take a moment to share it with your circle would you please take a moment to pay it forward we would so appreciate that ways that you can do that is by sharing this episode or going over to one of our social media accounts accounts and following us. So that's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and liking the content that's there or leaving a review for us on your podcast app, wherever you are listening to this show. All of that helps put RV Miles in front of a brand new group of listeners. And that means the world to us. So thank you so much. If you want to connect with Jason and I, you know where to find us. We are in the RV Miles Facebook group, along with about 12,000 other friends. You can also leave a comment on this episode on Absolutely. the YouTube video. Absolutely. We like to chat with you over there as well. So, all right. Thank you all so much. Please stay safe. Please be aware of the weather in your area and keep logging those RV miles. Hi, everybody. <laughs>